We're doomed, we're saved. The Biorevolution Podcast. Your host, Luise von Stecho and Andreas Horchler. We are doomed, we are saved. Episode number 15, as always, with daughter and father, Luise von Stecho, biology PhD, genetics and pharma expert, and Andreas Horchler, journalist. Today we're both at home, you in Berlin, myself in Frankfurt, and we'd like to talk about the new gold in pharma and biotech, and that's without a lot of doubt, data. But first of all, Lizzie, how are you? I'm excellent, how are you? Doing good, thank you. As always, we'd like to start with a couple of quotes, and you brought something very, I might call, contemporary, and on the other hand, one item that's pretty old especially in the day of data. You already introduced it, right? So, I mean, that was, I think, a quote that, that was flying around a lot in the, in the space of data analytics. That is, information is the oil of the 21st century and analytics is the combustion engine, which was from Peter Sandergaard, who is the VP of research at Gartner, who is, of course, someone who knows data. And then I have a more, as you say, 19th century quote, uh, which is Mark Twain. And that actually has some ringing for modern views of data as well. So what Mark Twain says is data is like garbage. You'd better know what you're doing, uh, <laughs> what you're going to do with it before you collect it. And I think that's really interesting because when we're talking about AI and data, there's this adage that's being used in almost every lecture, every talk about it, which is garbage in, garbage out, which of course says like if you don't have good data, whatever your AI engine will calculate will also be garbage. And that's very interesting in terms of how data is collected, how data is structured, what you actually want to do with the data before you collect it. Wow, very interesting. Mark Twain, the visionary, once more. Exactly. And I have another one which I might include because I think that's also a very interesting part of big data, especially when it comes to patient data, owning your own data, analyzing your own data which is from the founder of 23andMe, uh, who said it is important to democratize personal genetics and make it more accessible. So here we really have the patient in the focus or the individual in the focus as a potential owner and accessor of their own data. So the door is wide open to today's topic of we are doomed, we are saved. No question, we are living in a data-heavy age And data is the fuel for the AI crystal ball, meaning that without data, nothing works, especially when it comes to genetics and the pharmaceutical industry. So where do we stand? What's the lay of the land right now? The way we use AI at the moment or How we try to use it is to, to try to make any kind of predictions about future states. So we want to know how will the stock market look in two years or maybe in one year? How will my personal health develop over the course of my lifetime? So basically we use AI as the crystal ball and then the stuff that we feed in is the data. And of course, we have a lot of data. I mean, we live in a, let's say, data heavy age. So not only when it comes to biotech and pharma, but to any kind of application, right? We're constantly on social media and we click on a lot of stuff and all the marketing companies are collecting our click histories and we're really leaving a trail of data basically 
in our modern lives. But the same is also, of course, true when it comes to analyzing our health status. So we, of course, have our genetic information. We have all other biomolecules, but we also, of course, have many other parameters that we can use to predict our future health states. And that is something that, of course, pharma companies, biotech companies, but also big tech companies, Apple and many others, are exploring how can we actually use our data trail to predict how healthy we will be in the near-term future and maybe also in the long-term future, thinking about longevity. So how will actually our genes and maybe other parameters influence our health and lifespans? So we can say that data is and is even more developing to be the big treasure that's in part still hidden? Yeah, it it already is a treasure, I think. And I mean, many people uh, recognize that, hence the oil quote also. I mean, you want to mine it, <laughs> you want to explore it, you want to use it. And because data is a very valuable good nowadays, data ownership is also a big question. That said, data ownership differs very strongly in different regionalities. So for example, in um, the US, there's the possibility of secondary use of data. So patient data can, for example, be sold or accessed by third parties. There was this uh, company Flatiron Health that was bought by Roche, who, for example, is such a data broker or was such a data broker company. In Germany, that's not possible. In Germany, the patient owns the data. So we have a very strict data privacy environment compared to many other regionalities. That said, I think also here we have a lot of discussions about how to make the patient data at least in, within the healthcare system, not for secondary use, but for the doctors who use it, more explorable with the digital patient file and in general having more digitized information on patients where I think Germany is lagging behind significantly towards many, many other countries. Very interesting point. And just recently I could follow the German Secretary of Health Karl Lauterbach at a conference in Berlin, and he's very aware of the deficits of the German health system when it comes to data and the usage of data. And he said the giant is about to rise because encrypted data will allow for those data to be shared in the health system. And he argued that there is far more data available in general in Germany than other places. So do you think that the giant is going to rise any day soon? Yeah, I think so, for sure. That said, I think having data and having data accessible doesn't mean having data usable. There are still a lot of different insurers involved in Germany. I mean, it's, I think, not as fractured and as complex as in the US, but still we don't have only one insurer who might be collecting the data of their patients. A patient journey is also usually not like a very strict trajectory, so you might have dropouts of, of patients who go to a doctor, then the doctor cannot help them, then they decide, ah, maybe I just wait for another year or I go maybe to like a wonder healer or I go to the, what I think in Germany is very popular, <laughs> to go to the uh, drugstore yourself and buy some kind of stuff that's like homeopathy or whatever, alternative treatments that are mm -hmm. not covered by the healthcare system. So you might actually have like a very disjointed patient journey True. that is not covered uh, and will not help you to make any make any useful inference <laughs> about how this patient will be doing in the future. So I think still we will deal 
with data that is not as structured and not as usable as we would like because and I think this is a general big challenge, not only when it comes to patient data in terms of their medical history, but also when it comes to scientific data about genetics, about any kind of drug development. We have a lot of missing data points and the data is not meant to be analyzed by an AI engine or to be put to use in the way that um, we now want to use it because, I mean, it had a completely different purpose in mind when it was produced. So it's it's not good data, basically. It's not data that's in a format that's very usable. Right. So in a sense, you're saying that AI doesn't speak pharma yet, like a foreign language or so? I think the AI speaks the language of patterns, but it needs good data to recognize meaningful patterns. I think basically it's not the fault of the AI, but it's the fault of the data. So if the data is very biased, if it's very skewed, if it has a lot of missing values, if it doesn't cover uh, the heterogeneity of a group, for example, if it's very biased towards white men in their 30s, then you will not be able to predict maybe uh, a woman of color in their 60s because it might be very different, the response to a certain drug or simply the general health status. I mean, there are so many studies now that show that we need a lot more variety also in the way, for example, that clinical trials are being done. And I mean, we have learned from other contexts how vulnerable AI engines and AI models are to biases, for example, from these studies in the legal system in the United States where you had like very significant racial biases or we have it uh, with the image recognition or NLP models that have a very strong gender bias that puts the woman in the kitchen and puts the man <laughs> in the hospital, uh, being the doctor in the hospital and the woman is the nurse. I mean, these kind of things, but that is not the fault of the AI, that's the fault of the input data. And if we have a similar situation for the healthcare system, then we will also get such skewed predictions that are not valid for a large population of people, because simply we don't have the correct data to train the model. So one of the most discussed cases probably was the autonomous driving, where the algorithm was able to detect very complex structures, but didn't recognize a tree or a wall or something like that. But let's go back to biotechnology and drug development. Where are we standing right now when it comes to algorithms, when it comes to AI? What is being developed right now and what is the role of data? I mean, in the last, so I mean, AI is the, the huge hype in pharma and biotech, of course. So we all come across the headlines, AI will change everything, drug discover, uh, sorry, AI discovered drugs that in itself already, what does that mean? Did the AI produce, <laughs> discover and clinically test and then bring to the market the drug? So that, of course, is not the case. That said, there are certain steps and especially those data heavy steps and the steps where we have a lot of good data, where AI is making already a real impact and will continue to do so. So, for example, for discovery of targets, for discovery of molecules, anything where you have a lot of input data. So, for example, for molecule structures, you have 
billions and billions of molecule structures lying around that already have been tested. So repurposing this data and putting it into a different context. We have the scientific literature, which of course is a huge body of evidence. And there these new language models, large language models such as ChatGPT can also make um, a real difference in exploring this massive amount of data and extracting meaningful information. Same goes, of course, for any kind of other structured information, um, such as uh, protein or genetic information, where we have connections between a patient and their genomic state that can tell us maybe, oh, this might be actually what's leading to the disease on the long run. So there is a lot going on currently, and that is, I think, very exciting. That said, still, as I pointed out before, also this data is biased in a sense that we don't it was not produced to be used by AI. So we will have a lot of missing values because if we, especially if we go with published data, there's this bias in academia, uh, which also makes sense from a strategic point of view to never publish negative data or very, very rarely publish negative data because the journals are not interesting in knowing I worked five years on something and I found nothing. But the algorithm would be very interested in this information because we basically have a, a strong bias towards positive outcomes and we can infer non-information as potential negatives, but we cannot be sure. Maybe, I mean, there's the possibility no one ever explored this or someone explored that for a long time, but it didn't work. Maybe it also did work, but I don't know, the PhD student decided to become a yoga teacher instead and left the project and no one picked it up again. So these kind of missing values we don't have. And at the same time, if we talk about uh, research in the pharmaceutical industry and in the biotech industry, we have the challenge that, of course, this data, as we discussed earlier, it's, the, it's their treasure, it's their oil. Of course, they will not make that public. I mean, this is an industry that is purely based on intellectual property. All your money comes from you owning your idea, basically, or owning your intellectual property. So, of course, sharing data openly kind of defeats this purpose, at least in the current model that we have uh, for this industry. So there are so-called data silos. And, of course, bigger pharma companies, they have huge amounts of internal data that they can use and that they also use for feeding it into their AI algorithms. But that is limited to this company or maybe collaborators and will not be made openly accessible. Gizzi, before we dig a little deeper into data sharing, I want to share a little story because just recently I met a leading doctor here in Frankfurt and he's head of a European Union project about COVID. What they try to find out is, for instance, things like Why is the mortality rate in countries like Croatia lower than, for instance, in Belgium? So this is a long project. And what he was telling me is that he cannot handle all the publications because they pop up like in uh, intervals of seconds or so. And uh, nobody is capable of reading all this, but you need the evidence. And of course, you need all the serious publications to really cover backgrounds on COVID, for instance. Yes, that I mean, it can do that now. One thing is that you need to ask it the right questions. And that's not as easy as you might think. So you need to tell the algorithm them exactly what you want. And as you just said, I mean, there are so many applications where you cannot just 
read the scientific literature. You have millions of papers that come out. And they are also of different quality, which is something that is also really important to take into consideration that not everything that is published is true. Not also because, I mean, scientists intentionally publish wrong results, but simply because sometimes experimental conditions are not correctly chosen or in the cell line that you investigated, you have an artificial expression of a protein or something like that. So in that sense, yeah, there are many pitfalls when it comes to not only reading all the data, but also putting it into context. So how important is what I'm finding here? And therefore, you can actually use this scoring models where you look at the trust you have into the publication itself, the trust that you might have in the in the research group, in the journal where it's published, in the way the experiment was designed. And all of these things you can actually also do with artificial intelligence models nowadays, which is pretty cool. So, I mean, coming back to the question of data, it's not only having the data, but also contextualizing the data in order to be sure that you're not collecting garbage Predictions your model will make are not garbage. Quick question in between. Who do you think will fill those new professional roles? Will it rather be the nerds coming from IT who will learn a little bit about biotech and pharma? Or will it be the lab people who picked up on IT and handling algorithms. I think having teams that include both roles are have the highest chances of success. And I think this is really also a question for the future in general. When we think about applying AI to any kind of area, that uh, you need interdisciplinary teams. You need people who are the subject matter experts who understand the question in terms of the subject, but you also need the people who have the background in AI, machine learning, IT, who understand how to use the models, but also how to structure the data, how to make the data accessible, how to harmonize the data, all these kinds of things. So I think you need to bring all those roles together in order to get the most of such projects. But that also means bye-bye ivory tower, doesn't it? Because uh, I can well imagine that pharmaceutical company will not be able without data sharing, and let's come back to this point a little bit for a while, that they cannot accomplish too much without data sharing, without collaborating with people from outside. And so, again, is this really the farewell to the ivory tower with a strict protection of research? Yeah, I think it might go both ways. Hopefully it goes goes the democratized way. But um, so if we if we think about a more democratized version of, of the pharma industry and also an empowered patient, there are many initiatives now where on the one hand you can share data uh, in between the industry. There's, for example, this Malady project where different big pharma and also uh, university institutions are working together, hosted by a company who does this federated learning. So this is kind of, you would imagine everyone throws their data in a pool and then you can access this data, but in an anonymized fashion. So you can actually not track back whose data it was. And these kind of models can, of course, 
be like you get the best out for everyone, but you don't have the risk of uh, sharing any information that might be something that you want to keep for yourself for your own development efforts. So that I think is a very promising direction. And that should, of course, lead the way also for larger projects, for example, when it comes to, I mean, genetic data on different patients, the more you have, the more complete the picture becomes. And then it might be that the biases can actually um, be reduced by doing that. And it could be that one even would have a shared uh, pool of money where you would say, okay, we have missing data points. We need another group of individuals that should be put in there, or we should have other experimental conditions, or we want to have a stronger negative pool, for example. And to produce data in mind, not with can I, as a scientist or as a, a, as a pharma representative, can I answer this question, but can I actually feed the model in a meaningful way? And many of these biotechs that are really invested in AI and Citro, uh, for example, they are doing that. They're uh, specifically producing data for the AI engines, uh, which, of course, gives you better results if you have like a very complete and very variable data set to feed in. But that said, I mean, having data from many different groups, different academic labs and biotechs and pharma could be very helpful also in the sense of reducing biases and showing this could be shown by many different groups in the same experimental conditions, which of course makes the point a million times stronger than if one person showed that once. And then you can say, yeah, maybe it was also just the weather or something. One thing we haven't covered yet is personal genomics, and I think this fits very good into the show because the name is We Are Doomed, We Are Saved. And uh, I guess there's quite a bit of doomsday in personal genomics when it comes to data, right? Yeah, so I mean, personal genomics, so again, companies like 23andMe, they, and that is something that is done, for example, in the United States, but also other countries, Iceland, for example, has a very big personal genomics screening project where you as an individual can hand in a sample of your DNA and then they analyze it for you and they tell you something about your ancestral history. So where did your ancestors come from? in the past generations, how much of a Neanderthal genome do you have in you, but also your potential risk of developing diseases, genetic diseases, but also uh, more complex diseases that are, for example, metabolic diseases that are, do you have an increased risk, for example, of developing type 2 diabetes or something similar? And there, I think, is one of the big challenges. Of course, it's great. Also, as uh, the founder of 23andMe, uh, she said, like, it's good to democratize genomics, democratize data. And I think this is one of the really, the let's say, safe points or one of the more utopian ideas that everyone can own their own data. It's not very easy to know what to do with this information as an individual, because there are many diseases for which you might have a predisposition, which you cannot do anything about. And you also only have a risk. So it might be that nothing ever happens, but you have this doom hanging over you for the rest of your life that you might develop Parkinson's, you might develop diabetes, whatever. And there, of course, you might say, okay, you can do lifestyle changes and that's good anyways. But there is, of course, a trade-off. I mean, in general, I think it's a good idea to have a healthy, I mean, we, we talked about it many times in this podcast, diet and exercise. It's a good idea to eat healthy, sleep 
exercise and don't do any things that are bad for you. But if there's nothing else you can do for your health and you know that you might develop a fatal or very debilitating disease, it's maybe better to have that in an environment where you have a healthcare professional who can tell you something about it and who can put it into context than if you just get an email and it says you have a 30% risk of developing this. Actually, for the 23andMe story, this this even happened. Uh, so the founder, she was then actually married to one of the Google founders, Sergey Brin, and he did this screen and he found out that he had a predisposition to develop Parkinson's. It's good to empower people, but if you want to empower them, it's also important to give them the right context and the education to understand what it means. And I have to say, even in the context of going to a doctor and getting a diagnosis nowadays, it's not always, I think that patients really understand even what type of the disease they have, but also what are the options and what does that mean for your life. So it's it's very important to understand the right context about what that means. And I think having this probability, I think this is also very risky always dealing with probabilities as an individual, because you might be, I mean, if you have a 98% chance of developing something, you might be in this 2% who don't, that makes it, in my mind, a bit risky. One ethical question surely comes to mind when we think about personal genomics and law enforcement, because in some countries, law enforcement is using those data to find out about who committed crimes, right? So that, again, is very different in different regionalities. I think in Germany that would not be allowed. In the United States it's allowed to do that. So what they do, and I think this is a massive ethical and also legal gray zone to actually find criminals because you can do an analysis of relatives. So you can track down, I think, around four corners. If someone actually uploaded or um, got their genome analyzed, you can link that back to DNA traces. And that actually seems to work pretty well. So they found, for example, this infamous Golden State killer by doing such an analysis But as a relative of someone who committed a crime, at least if you're a close relative, you're actually not obliged to provide evidence against the person that you're related to if it's your, your a close family member or spouse. Having that done without your knowledge, just by your DNA, is, I have to say, a very scary scenario. So knowing, okay, your cousin committed murder and you don't know about it, but you are part of the, the process of finding this person. I mean, of course, if it's about murder, you probably would also want to have this person arrested and judged. But that said, I mean, maybe you wouldn't because you have other reasons for it. And that's why the legal systems, at least I think in Germany, allow you, if it's a close relative, to not say anything. And then, I mean, There are always these discussions about data privacy, right? That And the, the most common adage is like, I have nothing to hide. So just look at my data. I have nothing to hide. That might be true in a country where you trust your government, where you trust your insurers. All the big tech companies have your best interests in mind. I'm also not someone, I have a smartphone, I use Google, I use Apple, I also click all the boxes, of course, use my data for whatever you want. But... If you live in a 
society or a system where it might actually be a little bit trickier with personal freedom, thinking, for example, about China. These data and also your own genetic data and any kind of other data that is being collected about you could also be put to use for things that you would not be very favorable off, I would say. And I mean, we have all these scandals around ad targeting, for example, and bots coming from Russia, influencing elections in the United States, potentially in Germany, where your Facebook data or your, your click history is being used to specifically target you for things. Imagine you can do that with your genetic information. You can do that with, for example, information that is done by uh, biomarkers that are based on facial expression. So there are companies working on detecting depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorders based on facial expression or detecting things on, based on the way that you click on your phone or that you, uh, that you walk, you might be able to detect Parkinson's. And I mean, on the one hand, of course, it's great to have this knowledge about yourself, but handing over this knowledge to other players, be it your insurer, be it your employer, be it your government, it's actually not so easy to make these decisions. And I think we already have the precedence for all of that with the big tech companies collecting all the data we have on social media. And I think we'll have a similar situation most likely with, for example, personal genomics data. And that's very risky. And it's also, I think, risky uh, in countries like Germany, where you have, at least for the health data, a very strong privacy protection. But then you might just use providers in other countries, and then your data, again, isn't safe. So I think working together towards, I think, empowering the individual to be literate about their own health data. And that, I think, is extremely difficult. But to know, I mean... I own my data, but what can I do with it? Could I, for example, sell it? <laughs> yeah, and I guess quite a lot of people would do it without hesitation. Yeah, and I think that that I think is just uh, yeah, it's a potential dooms scenario in a sense that we are already seeing the negative outcomes in other fields where the big tech companies they are not there for privacy protection or also for acting as ethical players in a game. They are there to earn money based on how you click. And if the same is true for our health data, that is very difficult. Closing this episode, Easy, how high are your hopes when it comes to data, when it comes to AI in the healthcare sector? Will we be able to solve the manifold problems we've been discussing When it comes to personal data, when it comes to ethical behavior in the pharma industry, how optimistic are you or are you optimistic at all? Um, I'm optimistic in a sense that I think as long as there isn't. So I think it's really a question of incentives for industries to act ethical based on getting something out of it. So I think there needs to be a model where for pharma, but also for other tech companies who collect any kind of health data, um, there needs to be a monetary incentive to not do anything bad with this data or to not use it for wrong purposes. And I think this, what makes me a little bit hesitant about being positive about it, is that the regional differences are so striking that in the end, in this game, probably the ones who have the least privacy protection will win because they have the most data access and they can do the most with it. And that would probably not be to the benefit of the individual. It might be, I mean, 
because it's in drug development, that it could be for uh, the benefit of the many. So having the privacy of a few people violated might actually lead to better and faster drugs for many people. But I think for the individual, that could be could be very difficult. And I think, I mean, the the way that we also as individuals have handled our digital literacy when it comes to social media gives us a hint of how we will handle our digital literacy when it comes to health data. I think it's too difficult for many people, first of all, to think through and also to live with the consequences of denying a technological advantage. Because if you would, for example, get better medication by just uploading your data freely to everyone, then probably you would do it even though there might be privacy risks in it. I would probably also do it, I have to say. And then I think it's really just the question, do we trust the system in which we live and do we trust the players who have access to our data to have our best interests in mind? And that can probably be said for some of them that they don't. Or that you just have leaks. I mean, cybersecurity also, especially in Germany, is not, let's say, on its highest quality level. So, I mean, we had a lot of hacking situations in hospitals and universities and government organizations so i think yeah that will most likely not change very drastically so i think our data is probably not as safe so empowering ourselves to do the best with our data will probably be the way to at least make us understand what the risks are and how to best counteract them and then we can at least choose boils down to education at the end yeah so we've been talking about the new gold in pharma and biotech. And I have no doubt that this hasn't been the last episode addressing this topic, Easy. Absolutely. I think we'll also have some guests to talk about that in more detail because I think it's fascinating. And there are so many ways also you can analyze health data, medical data, data and drug development nowadays and so many different layers to it that I think that uh, is, is super interesting and we'll cover a few more episodes with that. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're doomed, we're saved. The BioRevolution podcast with Luise von Stecho and Andreas Seuchler. If you like the show, subscribe to it, leave your comment. We're always happy to hear from you. Thank you.